you ever have those days where you don't get what you want, things don't go just right? Well, when I recorded this interview, that's exactly what happened. Uh, I had changed my recording format, was trying something new, and did not have my microphone hooked up correctly. So what I thought I was recording through was not my USB mic, but my built-in microphone on my laptop. So a couple things happened. Unfortunately, I sound like I'm kind of far away, maybe have a bucket over my head. But the most distracting thing is that it picks up the sound of my laptop fan, which can be noisy. I was unable to remove that sound, and by the time I got around to listening to the actual recording, it was too late for a do-over. So what I've tried to do is make it as pleasant as possible by removing the gaps when I don't talk. The sound of the fan is on my track only. Um, and so I've uh, cut those pieces out that are most distracting. So hopefully it's not too difficult to listen to. It's quite interesting. It's a very interesting conversation I have with my son. So I hope I hope you get a you know you can put up with it long enough to hear what he has to say. It's pretty important. Um, but I wanted just to explain to you what happened, and uh, you know this is still still somewhat experimental for me. So uh, hopefully things will be better, and we won't have to go through something like that again. Okay, so let's get this interview going. Hey, my name is Chris Jensen, and this is a special series of my life and welcome to it called It's Not About Me, It's About Us, where I interview my friends one at a time to talk about things we know about each other, how we met, common experiences, new things, and basically how we are living through this time period with, uh, with the coronavirus disease. So sit back and enjoy as you listen to this episode's interview. Hey, son. Hey, Dad. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Oh, man. So you've had a busy day today. Yep. Yeah, so Earth Day's on Wednesday. Yes. Is there is are the activities that you have planned something you can talk about right now? Um <clears throat> well not really. <laughs> think about it. Uh <laughs> I mean it's not it's not like that big of a deal, but um people are just trying to figure out how to still make their voices heard. Uh-huh. In the current circumstances that we're facing, so it's been a little bit difficult. Can't really have like big group gatherings or protests or anything. But sure, no, I take it. Yeah, so we're just figuring out how to like protest like one or two people at a time, <laughs> pretty much, and still make a difference. So this isn't probably going to air until uh, 
the second week of May. Okay. And so by then, you know, Earth Day will be two weeks in in the in the past. So. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> yeah. So where um, where is it going to be in Arcata or in? Uh, Humble. Well, people are just like getting ready to, like, basically uh, protest where they where they are, um, without having to go very far. I see. Uh huh. Um, but I mean, is so is Earth Day the celebration going to be at the university or? Uh, oh well, it was. Um, there was a whole Earth Week that had been scheduled, and I was going to go and do a presentation, <clears throat> and. Uh, obviously that's not happening anymore, but there, I'm doing an, an online presentation on zoom, right? which I still need to learn how to use. And, uh, I'm going to be talking to folks about monitoring timber harvest plans. So, uh, going online and finding documents, uh, related to the timber harvest plans and, or maybe if people notice that there's a timber harvest plan in their area, then they can go search for it. Um, what I do generally is I just sort of watch as they come down the line and read through the documents to find out uh, how much energy that I might need to put into it. Um, but sometimes people like find the notices like nailed to trees near their home and then they need to go uh, figure out what's going on. So uh, I know what you're talking about, but let's see if we, <laughs> yeah. let's see if we can bring our listeners up to speed a little bit. Okay. Um, so you moved up into the Northern California area when you were 16, 17. Yeah. 16, 16. And, um, so you've been um, working to protect the forests uh, and doing some environmental work uh, since then. I mean, this is what what you've done with your life pretty much, right? Mostly, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, when we talk about, you know, uh, the, the, the plans and everything, can you explain to our listeners what a forest plan is or a cutting plan? Yeah, so uh, in the state of California, there's a regulatory framework for uh, cutting trees to make products on an industrial scale. So there's certain com- – like if if you or your company own more than X amount of acres of forest land and you want to log, then you're considered an industrial logging company. And you have to file a timber harvest plan. Well, whether or not you're a large landowner, you still need to file a timber harvest plan. Um, But these industrial timber harvest plans are the ones that I've been mostly involved in. Um, So there's a long process. And this is kind of, I guess, warming me up for my presentation uh, on Tuesday. But uh, basically, if you're a timber corporation then you have employees called foresters and each forester has a given area where they work. And what the forester's job is, the forester is told how much lumber they need to produce from the forest. And then the forester goes out and sections off areas to be cut down. 
And then they write a plan based on that idea and submit it to the Department of Forestry called CAL FIRE because it's forestry and fire protection. Um, and then CAL FIRE reviews the plan along hopefully with Department of Fish and Game, water quality, uh, sometimes geology people are on board. Um, but a lot of the regulatory agencies don't have a lot of funding they're unable to send a surveyor out on every logging plan. So they also have to like uh, identify the most potentially damaging plans so that they can spend their time as wisely as possible. Wow. How much, how much acreage are, uh, are we talking here? Uh, if you're looking at an industrial um, logging plan uh, on the, on the average. Oh, on average, man, it's really changed over the years. Uh, it w- it started out when I first moved up here, there'd be a whole lot of logging plans that were only like a hundred acres, give or take. Now the strategy seems to have shifted where the industrial timber companies will file logging plans that are 500 to a thousand acres, maybe 2000 acres. Uh, and it's become common for these overwhelmingly large logging plans to be filed to where, even if you are doing your best as a as a environmentalist or advocate or a state employee who's trying to protect the environment, you can't actually go everywhere. You can't see everything and know exactly what's really going on. And it's really, at that point, the word of the forester that you have to uh, either, you have to analyze and figure out if they're telling the truth or not. Um, and some certain foresters have track records that are much more destructive than others. So wow. there's a lot to it. Uh, I could go, I could probably talk about it for an hour. Sure. That's a lot. That's a 2000 acres. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, so why, why is it you do what you do? Why is it important to protect our, uh, our uh, old growth forests and uh, evergreens. Well, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of personal reasons that I do what I do. Uh, then there's sort of the overarching uh, existential threat that we face due to climate change and the destruction of the natural habitats that keep us all alive. Um, so, you know, like global warming, as we used to call it and whatever, it used to be more of a, of a fringe like idea. And uh, as it's become more accepted, it's become uh, a lot of, of people are recognizing that the forests of the Pacific Northwest, the old growth redwoods and Douglas fir and spruce pines, um, these forests have a huge potential to help combat climate change by absorbing huge amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere, um, a lot of which has been released from the logging of the original forest in the first place, of which there's only a few percent left from the original uh, expanse of, of temperate rainforest up here in the Pacific Northwest from where I live in southern Humboldt County all the way up to Alaska. 
So, so do you feel, I know you've had some successes in the past too. Um, so how do you, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, there's been a lot of damage. I've seen a lot of damage. Um, but, and we've had some success for sure. There's a lot of areas of ancient forests that are still standing because people, uh, climbed trees and lived in them for years. Some people blockaded roads, um, persistently every year, year after year, organized large protests and action camps. Um, people filed a lot of lawsuits. There's been all kinds of different strategies and a lot of times they're coexisting, uh, legal strategies and direct action, civil disobedience strategies. Um, and so a lot of times when there's multiple strategies working hand in hand, they're able to, we're able to, uh, win. But right now, <clears throat> it's kind of in a different situation now than before where there was a lot more destruction because the, just the scale of logging was a lot bigger at the time. The timber industry has kind of taken uh, a downturn in the past decade. So there's less logging now, but they're still going after uh, important areas where the big trees are. Um, and, and it's not just the logging of the trees, too. I'm guessing that the more they log, the harder it is to get to the trees they they want to log. And so they've got to build roads that affect the, the, the streams and the, the, the fish and the, uh, the living things that use those streams, right? Yes, that's totally true. Um, they, they are in the process of trying to build new roads. And in some cases, <clears throat> the forests that they're going after are so remote or on slopes that are so steep that they actually will use helicopters to cut. They have the loggers cut down the trees and they have a helicopter fly overhead and uh, these other workers called choke setters have attached cables to the logs, which are then attached to the helicopter's cable that it's lowering down. It's pretty, it's very expensive and very uh, resource intensive practice. But um, so this timber company, Humboldt Redwood Company, that we've been fighting for a while now, uh, for. Whew, at least 10 years, it feels like, um, they have a policy where they don't cut down trees that are, that were alive on the year 1800. And it's one, some people over, but it's also a problematic policy because for one thing, there's a lot, a lot of trees that are just under that age that they're going after that are very large, full of carbon. Uh, they're made from carbon and full of wildlife habitat. Um, and then there's also an exception to this rule where if the, if the company wants to build a road that there's no tree that they're not going to cut down if it's in the way of the road. So it almost seems like they sometimes use that to eliminate trees that are going to be in the way of their tree farming practices or. Mm. So one of the, th one of the things I remember when I was, you know, it's, being a bio major um, and in a, with an emphasis in environmentalism, environmental biology, I remember um, studying the life the, the the life cycle of a forest and how it evolves, and that it goes through various stages of different kinds of trees, 
And so once an area has been logged, it might be, you know, intuitive to say, well, they'll just replant, right? But if I remember correctly, by logging like that, it, can, it changes the ecosystem so that these, these, those types of trees don't grow as well and um, other types of plant life sort of move in. Um, is, that, is that what's happening up there or... What's that, what after yeah. you know after yeah, something thanks for asking about that yeah, yeah because um you're, it's right it's true a lot of people uh are satisfied with the idea that the timber companies replant but what they're doing is not uh promoting the growth of a natural forest ecosystem they're tree farming they're they're called plantations and they use <clears throat> toxic herbicides to kill a lot of the tree species that are not considered to have commercial value. So what they're doing is they're reducing down to maybe 10 or less percent of the species that they can't sell so that the redwood or Douglas fir seedlings they've planted are able to take the site over. And at that point, it's like, practically what's called a monocrop, which is one species with very few others occupying the site. And this could be for like hundreds or thousands of acres. Uh, That's bad for a lot of reasons. Um, First of all, to bring it back for a second, instead of clear cutting or taking almost all the trees, they could go into areas that are dense, younger forests that are recovering from past clear cutting and thin the trees and introduce more of a more biodiversity, more species into the area, not like native species. Um, but what they're doing primarily is to take most of the trees and then try to plant the whole area as one species for tree farming. So those tree farms are bad for fire safety. They're very combustible. They're tinder boxes. And a lot of times they're, uh, very brushy. They're along the sides of dirt roads. They, when they clear the sides of the roads, there's just big brush piles lying around, and they uh, they also soak up a lot of water. Smaller trees are less water e- efficient, less conservative with water than uh, large trees, and they actually a tree plantation will reduce the amount of water available to go into the water courses. So there's a lot of bad things about them. Yeah. I'm all for reforesting, but we shouldn't have to like, that's called like early seral. There's like different seral stages. I don't know if you remember from biology, but a little bit. The late seral is like what's almost what we call old growth, or it could be considered old growth. And old growth is like a loose term. It's not a scientific term. Um, and there's been a lot of debate about whether or not old growth forests should be cut down. Of course, I'm uh, pro old growth forest and don't think it should be cut down. Right. Whereas timber companies that can make many thousands of dollars off of one old growth tree obviously want to be able to cut as many as possible. Sure. Um, so yeah, the we're we're trying to save the older forests because they're fire resistant they're important wildlife habitat they're holding all this carbon from escaping into the atmosphere and they're able to 
continue soaking up huge amounts. There's all these reasons that we should be promoting the growth of forests full of big old trees instead of chopping it all down and replacing it with tiny trees and highly flammable tree farms. So, you know, the North Coast gets a lot of rain. And I'm wondering also, when a lot of logging takes place, um, there's probably some soil erosion also that takes place. And do the little, uh, do the creeks and tributaries and streams um, start getting silt clogged? Yes. So some, it really depends on the geology of the area. So some of these uh, mountains are made out of silt from the ocean. So they're, they, they, this is a very young mountain range Hmm. where I live. And when you take the trees off of it, they're what's holding it together. So if you imagine their roots are like rebar holding together concrete, but when the roots are dead and the trees are unable to intercept all the water that's coming down and the heavy rains we get in the wintertime, then the mountainsides uh, can sometimes just basically liquefy and slide down. Oh, dear. And just wipe, they, they've wiped out houses, roads. Um, they go into rivers and uh, bury the the stream beds that salmon um, lay their eggs in. And so salmon, since for many decades now, have been struggling in this area. There's one river, uh, the Smith River, where the geology is really solid, hard hard rock, mm-hmm. and the salmon are doing a lot better there. But a lot of these other places out here, for example, there's freshwater and Elk River. Those are near the city of Eureka. Okay. And Elk River has had folks has had uh, settlers living on it for I think over a hundred years. Um, and they had, uh, apple orchards uh, that they planted and the descendants of those settlers are now seeing on an, a regular winter storm, their apple orchards are flooding, um, at a water level that never would have been expected a hundred years ago. And so and there's a bridge that's commonly underwater during winter storms. People can't get out. They have to take a canoe across. Mm. Um, the water's like chocolatey. And when it, when the water goes away, it leaves a layer of fine sediment, really like thick, mm-hmm. uh, silt that it just blankets everything and smothers the uh, roots of trees and they have to like clean it off their houses doesn't go away and yeah so there's a lot of damage to the hillsides here there's been a lot of also there's a lot of earthquakes here and so that contributes to the amount of landslides that happened before the 70s uh their logging was largely unregulated where they wanted they could build roads wherever they would turn stream beds into roads they would just divert the water into a ditch on the side and uh, just cut and run because there was no long-term investment for a lot of the loggers, unfortunately, at that time. Um, So there's still a legacy of that, and we're still coming out of that period. The salmon haven't recovered from that yet. Also, removing the large trees along the river removes the shade, which increases water temperatures, which also hurts the salmon. So they've been, and then there was a big flood that also wiped out a lot of their habitat. So there's, and that was in the, uh, when was that? That was in the 60s. So uh, yeah, it's been hard for them. And 
also for the human residents here with the flooding problems. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what are the what, so um, after the the trees are cut down, turned into whatever. What is what is the the end product? Oh, the end product. I mean, what are they using all this lumber for? Is it for building homes or what is it? Well. They would love you to think that it's used for building homes that are going to last for a hundred years, and during that hundred-year time, it's going to help save the environment because they're storing carbon in the form of a house. That's their propaganda. Um, the truth is that they have no control of where the lumber goes once they sell it, and it. Yeah, I'm sure some of it turns into houses and other. Pieces are used for concrete forms or other disposable purposes and are immediately turned back into the waste stream, possibly burned. Either way, they are going to decay rapidly and return the carbon to the atmosphere. Um, so, uh, oh yeah, so also decks and pergolas and lattices and fences, these outdoor structures, um, don't last very long in the long run. They don't last nearly as long as the tree. And they're trying to say that uh, cutting the trees down and turn, turning them into these products is a way to store the carbon and help keep it out of the atmosphere. And that is one of their um, arguments that they're helping to fight climate change. Oh, my. What about um, what about paper? How much? How much? Yeah, I wanted to. So it's only it's come to my attention more recently that uh, some of the local industry actually does supply chip wood chips for paper manufacturing, and apparently the toilet paper supply and demand situation uh, is keeping them going at some <laughs> level because the demand for redwood is down. I think there's not a lot of construction happening right now, um, but they're sending chips uh, up north for two yeah processing plants to make paper hmm. and it's like they're like it's one of their talking points on the radio these days when they have to talk to the media about a tree sit or a certain protest they start to say how important their company is right now because of the toilet paper situation and it's like man that's not a point in your favor like, what are you talking about <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous <laughs> you know because people yeah. people aren't using toilet paper more than they used to be. They just were buying a lot of it, but we're not using it yeah. faster. So that's <laughs> right. Pretty, yeah. So pretty stupid. It's, it's like an even flow situation. Like there's, there's an X amount of butts that need to get wiped. And that's, it. <laughs> that's true. Um, but, uh, so, and it's at a pretty even rate. I mean, basically. So, um, yeah, buying a whole bunch of toilet paper creates a demand now, but then when the shelves are stocked again and everyone realizes that, that's not the most important thing in the world, then what's going to happen? Yeah. Then there's so, the, the and, demand will go down and it won't be. Yeah. Yeah. And if we're really in a recession or a depression, as it very much appears, then that means housing starts are going to be down. Mm-hmm. The use of lumber in general is going to be down. Mm-hmm. So, and what I think is it's unfortunate that the timber industry is so intent on clear cutting here. Because this could be, for them, an opportunity to practice more sustainable forestry when there's a high demand for a product. That means they can afford to uh, 
do things that might appear less efficient on the desk of some accountant somewhere, mm-hmm. but actually in the long run will be better. For example, a thinning project where it doesn't matter what the diameters of the trees you're taking out are, you can leave the big trees and thin the smaller ones. It's all, it's all getting turned into wood chips. Sure. It doesn't matter. So when they're making lumber, it's more efficient to cut down larger trees. And it should also be mentioned that these tree farm trees, uh, they're only really expected to let them grow for 50 or 60 years max. And the wood quality in them is terrible compared to naturally grown trees. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like salmon. Like if you know the difference between farmed salmon versus wild caught salmon, it's a very similar situation. The wild caught salmon is just more quality and the, the farmed salmon is like squishy and pale and just not the same. Right. And the farmed trees contain more of the white wood that is not rot resistant, um, which everyone thinks about redwood. When they think red, when builders think redwood, they think, oh, this wood is going to last for a really long time if I build a deck out of it. But that's not really what you get when you're buying this stuff from uh, Green Diamond or Humboldt Redwood Company. A lot of times you're buying stuff that's going to rot like in 15 years. So, so what, um, what got you started? I remember, uh, tell the, you know, your mom was a part of it, (laughs) right? Yeah. Let's see what got me started. Uh, well, I mean, what really got me started was being able to go camping when I was a kid, I think. And uh, realizing how much more fun it was to be in the forest than in the city. Although I did have fun in the city sometimes, but the life of going to school and rigid sort of governmental control was not that fun, and being out in the woods was awesome. So I I just appreciate it for that reason mm-hmm. in and of itself. But um, So... My mom told me about the ancient redwoods getting cut down, and when she told me about it, I kind of maybe was only half listening and thought it was a done deal, and that maybe you know it had even already happened, and it was like a terrible tragedy, but there's nothing we could really do about it. And then a few weeks later, uh, she told me she was going to a rally up here in Humboldt, and. Then I told her I wanted to go and she said, no, it's too dangerous because the cops might like attack the protesters. Um, but then uh, her friends that she was coming up here with uh, told her that it'd be fine and that I should be allowed to go if I want to. And so I did. And uh, yeah, there was like a couple thousand people at the rally. It was in a town where... Uh, the mountainside had slid down and destroyed 11 houses. Oh, my. And uh, a town called Stafford. Mm-hmm. And so we marched past the houses, and there was, yeah, like a concert, basically, with a lot of uh, speakers as well talking about the issues. And the National Guard and riot police were there um, to try and keep us from blocking the uh, – keep us from blocking Highway 101 – um, 
And then the next, I think it was the next day, a day or two later, there was a big rally at the Department of Forestry. And we ended up marching from there through this town called Fortuna to uh, a logging road gate that went into Headwaters Forest. It was an ancient redwood forest. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the largest unprotected old growth redwood forest left. And it was being logged at a really rapid rate. And uh, several hundred people were there and blocked the road. People sat down on the road. Uh, my mom sat down on the road, linked arms with a bunch of other women who uh, basically, I guess they were in an in, in affinity group, which is like in a protest. There might be smaller groups of people who... Uh, want to do similar things like civil disobedience or maybe they want to hang a banner or maybe they want to uh, set up a tree sit or something like that. So anyways, this affinity group that my mom was in, uh, yeah, they linked arms and sat down right in front of the cops who were all lined up with batons and helmets and uh, refused to move. And so, yeah, the the crowd just blocked the logging road gate. No traffic could get in and out. And some people started sneaking from the protest side of the gate around through the woods to the other side and were uh, piling rocks and logs in the road and making, like, walls. And so I decided that was cool and wanted to go do it. So I followed some people who were sneaking around. We got up onto the road, and we started putting rocks in the road. And... Uh, there was a whole bunch of people doing it, and there, the road was just completely covered with debris. Wow. And all of a sudden, the sheriffs, the crowd of sheriffs started running up the road towards us, and I jumped off the side of the road and uh, wound up in a pompous grass thicket, which is this grass that has, like, a serrated blade that will cut you if you rub it the wrong way, and mm -hmm. it cut me, but I didn't care, and I was just running through the woods and uh, didn't get caught. And another group of people had like split off and went to a tree sit. And, uh, yeah, it was an exciting day. Then we got dispersed. Oh, well, I forgot to mention. Okay. So I went back around to the protest back in the crowd. And, um, I guess some folks weren't satisfied with just, uh, being able to hold the road and keep it blocked. They wanted to get arrested to make a point, hmm. which is something I respect, but don't really do because well that's another just another discussion. Sure, I get it. I'll get arrested if I have to, but usually it's like sitting in a tree, blocking a road, whatever. But so they wanted to do civil disobedience and get arrested to uh, be in solidarity and maybe make it easier for other people who had already been arrested to get out of jail and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so. Yeah, my mom was in one of the groups that snuck around the through the woods and sat down in the road and refused to move. And then the sheriffs went up and arrested them. And there was there was some people I saw the sheriffs were like uh, twisting their ears and like jamming their thumbs like under their jaws, like using what's called pain compliance, uh, because like these folks weren't being violent. They were just weren't cooperating. They weren't doing what they were told or like getting standing up. They were like sitting down and refusing to move. Mm -hmm. And so the sheriffs were like hurting them, like causing them pain to try and 
get them to move. Uh, so that was my first experience of police brutality, witnessing that. Um, so there was a whole bunch about it that I learned really fast in a few days about logging, causing clear cutting, the ancient trees being cut down, the heavy police repression, and also heard a lot of some of the local opinions about environmentalists that weren't so positive who were yelling at us uh, from the uh, side of the road during the protest. So sure. Well, yeah, you know, it's pretty eye opening. It's um, it's an interesting, I mean, if you, if you can look at it from both sides, I mean, that whole area of California, their, their main industry was either fishing or lumber. Yeah. Right. And then lumber destroyed fishing. And then lumber destroyed lumber. Yeah. Because they, the people on top decided that they didn't need old growth forests. They needed to be able to log as fast as possible. They weren't trying to grow 200-year-old trees. They were trying to grow 50-year-old trees. And they weren't planning for 100 years of sustainability. They were planning for a year of we got to make – we got to meet our targets that these corporate overlords are telling us to meet basically because Pacific lumber, which had been um, a much more sustainable, not without its faults, but much more sustainable company um, up until the eighties when they were taken over by a, a hostile company called Maxam corporation from Texas that uh, basically used Pacific lumber to uh, make money to, or just to they siphoned all the value out of Pacific lumber they liquidated Pacific lumber and that included the forests but it also included the pension fund of the workers and job stability didn't last long after Max Am uh, came into the situation wow also they wanted the loggers to like cut lower on the tree they wanted the loggers to squeeze out just a little more wood. Even if it was a little more dangerous to cut the tree down low like that, they wanted them to do it. And they didn't – yeah, so they, they weren't the like uh, – they weren't seen as these like benefactors. Maxam Corporation wasn't seen as this benefactor that Pacific Lumber had been seen as by many workers. But because they – roughly tripled the rate of logging, they were able to hire a bunch of people. So there was an economic boom for a short period, but it did not last. And it caused a depression when Pacific Lumber was finally driven into bankruptcy. A lot of people who were multi-generational Humboldt County residents were uh, relying on Pacific Lumber when it went bankrupt, and they actually had to leave the area uh, after that. So what do you see the future for uh, the Pacific Northwest uh, and the lumber oh, the forests? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 am, I, can, I know. Uh, I could try. I could come up with some scenarios. <laughs> I mean, do you I think mean, do, do you think that do you, do you think that um, eventually people will wake up and say, hey, we need to preserve these forests, um, not just for the forest sake. Or for the wildlife that lives in the forest, but for the sustainability of the planet, for our own good. I mean, I think in a way it, it might almost have to come down to our own, you know, basic self-interest before people will start taking a look at it and saying, look, we need to figure out different ways to produce the things that we used to use, you know, lumber for. 
I mean, what's it going to take? I don't know. What's it going to take? I'm, pr- I'm pretty cynical about uh, society in the United States and its ability to, like, think that far ahead um, as a group. Um, uh, I think coronavirus is a good um, test, not, not a good thing, but a test case that shows us it's a learning experience where we can see that there's a whole lot of people that will only react when the danger is immediately at their doorstep and not a moment sooner. And so with climate change happening at a slower rate than a virus, it's like boiling frogs or whatever. It's not, people aren't alarmed um, unless their house is burning down, literally. Boiling frogs, or probably more accurately, boiling a frog. The story goes like this. Because a frog is cold-blooded, it cannot detect changes in the temperature of the water around it. So you get a pot of water, room temperature or colder, put the frog in it, it sits there, chilling. Turn the heat on, slowly. And the frog has no idea that the water is heating up. Little by little, it gets to the boiling point. The frog never jumps out of the water because it does not discern that it's in jeopardy. And it dies. And so the idea is that when things happen slowly around people, they don't notice it. And they tend to not notice it until it becomes a crisis. That's what boiling frogs or boiling a frog has to do with people. Simply means that we need to pay attention. We need to wake up and be alert of the things around us. Or maybe about to burn down. So uh, I'm not that optimistic about the like group mentality, Mm -hmm. but I think that there are individuals who have a lot more power than others in our society that can be swayed. Um, I don't think it's an ideal situation at all because I think like it would be great if we could adopt cultural practices that uh, sustain the environment rather than deplete it. Um, But I think private purchases or other ways of getting the timber out of the timber company's hands, getting the forest out of the timber company's hands is important right now because they can't be trusted. They're based on making money. They're not, they're not going to win in the long run by putting a spotted owl before their paycheck. Right. So, uh, or by putting the community of elk river before their company's like yearly profits. So, uh, Yeah. Uh, On the other hand, I think like we could totally do without all the lumber. I think that people who live in the forest should use lumber, but I think people who live in the desert should use adobe Hmm. and people who live in other environments should use whatever is appropriate for them. You live in the grasslands, build a cob or like straw bale house, like, and sure, maybe some lumber for the roof or whatever, but we don't need to use lumber the way we're using it. It's treated as a disposable product, almost like plastic or something, which we also shouldn't be using so much. 
Um, oh yeah. And there's all kinds of lumber being wasted like constantly in remodels and houses that are built that aren't going to last more than 50 years. Uh, wooden fences that aren't painted or in any way treated to like last in the weather. The wood is, you know, pallets and fiberboard that melts when it gets rained on. Like it's just treated as so disposable. We don't have to do that. We don't have to do like that. I think sometimes, you know, like with, with oil, it's a non-renewable resource, right? But I think people often think, well, you can plant a tree. So they see that as a, re- yeah. as a renewable resource. When yeah. in all honesty, because of the time it takes to grow a tree, it's really not renewable in the same, in the same way that other things might be. Well, what's, there's an ironic situation that's happened in throughout the past hundred years. And it's that when the forest was full of giant trees, you could sustain a much, you could literally sustain a much larger flow of high quality lumber from the forest because it's still growing. Mm. Um, But when they depleted the forest by clear cutting it, they removed all of that wood that took hundreds or thousands of years to grow and you can't grow it back in 60 years. But one acre of tiny trees, although it can grow in some ways, it looks like it's growing fast. It's not putting on as much wood as a giant tree Mm -hmm. or as an acre of giant trees. So like in an acre is like 200 by 200 feet, right? For reference for people who might not know an acre. So, um, you foresters, which, you know, there's, there's great foresters out there who really want to do good things for the environment. They can measure the trees and find out how much it's growing per year. They can find out how much the forest is growing per year per acre, and they can calculate over the long run. If I take X amount of the volume of lumber out of this stand, it's going to be replaced in like five years Hmm. because the rest of the trees are going to put on X amount of growth. And in fact, some of them are going to put on more growth because they were given space and a little bit more sunlight and water Mm -hmm. by the removal of a small percentage of the trees. So lumber can be a sustainable industry, but right now it's not like we have to get away from this model of let's grow trees to 60 years old and, and cut them down because we're talking about trees that can live with redwoods like thousands of years and with Douglas firs, many hundreds or maybe even more than a thousand. And they both get massive and can store huge amounts of carbon and help and improve everyone's quality of life who lives anywhere near them and possibly the whole planet. If we, as one of the many solutions to, or as one of the many things we can do to combat climate change around the globe. Yeah. Clear cutting it seems to me just has all kinds of implications. We've got about 20 minutes left, but I was just thinking that, um, you know, when the trees are clear cut, it can actually probably change the environment, you know, can change weather patterns because yes, you have a different, the, the, the different flow of, of wind because you don't have the tree blocks anymore and it changes the temperature because now sunlight is reaching all the way to the ground where it didn't before. 
Um, have you noticed some in- environmental and weather changes due to clear cutting? Definitely. I mean, I've noticed the weather change throughout my lifetime, but I've also noticed microclimate changes. Um, yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah, microclimate. Yeah. So in a few different ways. Yeah, I've seen the land dry out substantially. I've seen it turn in. I've seen it go from um, a cool, damp forest of big trees with an open understory where you're just walking around looking at all the big moss covered trees to like a tree farm that is very dry in the summertime and very dense and dark it's dark and dry in those Mm. tree farms in a new clear cut yeah the sun is baking everything and the wind carries away the moisture also one of the unique things about this area is because the fog rolls in straight from the ocean and sometimes it's not really fog to a lot of people, but when you're up in the mountains, it's fog for you. Mm -hmm. And that fog is being blown just like sometimes like 25, 30 miles an hour through the treetops on the top of the mountain. And the trees are windswept and like, they look like you can see they're sculpted. You can tell which way the wind, the prevailing winds are like throughout their entire lifetime because they're like windswept and everything. Um, those trees are catching the water droplets out of the fog and, and collecting them and dripping them down. And it could be like July and you're in a meadow and it's dry, crunchy grass. And then you walk a few hundred feet and you're in the woods and the fog's coming down and it's raining. It's Hmm. like literally raining and the tree is raining from the trees and there's little streams and rivulets that are full of water in the middle of summer um, just because of this fog drip. And when those types of forests are clear cut, it's, it's just robbing the ecosystem of that water. It's, wow. it's changing. It changes it so much because there's a lot of natural springs here, but they'll go underground in the summertime when everything's dry. Um, but with those moist ridge tops, like those springs can run like year round. That's amazing. Yeah. So let's bring it into some current events here with uh, with our whole, you know, uh, COVID-19. Um, the virus is spreading around and the stay-at-home orders and the social distancing. Um, I know because you are living more removed from an urban environment, even a, like a, a small city. Um, do, you, do, you, do you find it has affected um, how you function on a day-to-day? Well, yes, a little bit. Um, it's affecting my life because I'm not going to town as frequently as usual. And not able to, we're not, we don't have like meetings. Um, I don't have meetings with my fellow activists uh, as often as regular. Like we ba- it's basically limited to phone calls or the very occasional like saying hi from like six to ten feet away. And mm-hmm. then that's it. Um, and I live in an extremely rural area. Like a lot of people who, who live in Sacramento probably wouldn't even consider it a town. There's... There's like one little tiny convenience store with a gas pump um, and there's a community center, but it's it's a really rural environment. And I'm not trying to say like we're safe because of that or there's like not going to be any coronavirus here. 
a lot of people are taking caution. Um, a lot of people in the community I live in are in a more at risk age group. Um, oh, sure. Okay. And so a lot of folks have been, there's a community bulletin on the internet where people have been talking about it. I mean, they talk about a lot of stuff on the bulletin, but that's one of the things there's a lot of like peer pressure to like socially distance and wear masks and gloves and everything. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's doing it. There's like one store where they're not really doing it as much in this other neighboring town. And then in the town where I live more so like you're not even allowed to go in the store you go up to a window and ask them for what you want and they go and get it and bring it back out. Mm-hmm. Or they, they like put it, they like reach it out the window, put it on a table and then you grab off the table. Right. Right. Um, which I think is great. I think that's cool. I think it should be normal to take as many precautions as one feels is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's affecting my life because we rely in some ways on gatherings of people to defend the earth. And so uh, like, Imagine, like, would, would a standing rock happen right now? Most of the people listening, I I would think, have heard of standing rock. But for those who may end up listening to this, who aren't familiar with standing rock, I'll give you a little, little bit, and you can go research it more if you want. But there was a pipeline. It was the Keystone XL pipeline, and it was to be built starting in Alberta, Canada, and they have some tar sands, uh, oil refineries up there. And it's a thick, dirty, sludgy kind of oil. And um, they were going to build a pipeline starting in Alberta and coming into the United States. And it was going to pass through a town. And I, gosh, I wish I could remember what state it was. It's like North Dakota, something like that. And... They were going to build it near or in through a town, and the town citizens rose up against it in protest, and so they decided to divert the pipeline through uh, native territory, through reservation land. And rightly so, the natives rose up against it to oppose it, um, drew the attention of activists from around the country, and I believe around the world, and they took a stand at Standing Rock, that's what it was called, and there was a standoff there between the oil corporations and their security system and the activists. It was a big deal. Um, It's the kind of thing that doesn't happen all that often, Um, but it made the news for a very, very long time, and I looked at it just recently, and I believe it's still an issue. Um, So... Uh, that was Standing Rock. That is Standing Rock. And um, it's part of how people stand up to protect our environment. No right. Way. Right. No way. So, like, even like here in Humboldt County, we'll have camps. We have like 20 to 50 people who come here and maybe they come from the next town over, but or that maybe they come from San Francisco or L.A. Um and we can't do that right now. And so it's like we're at the point I'm at the point where there's one person who I'm around like pretty often who like I'm not really like distancing from because we basically live together. Mm-hmm. And then every like 
I think twice about like every other social interaction and even that I think about it, but I think twice about going to the store or like going to work because I'm trimming trees and a lot of times there's nobody nearby and it's not like a contagion risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just like, I have to touch the gate and I, so I pick up a stick off the ground to open the gate. Wow. Yeah. Whatever. But yeah, what, what's really, what's really scary to me is not so much my situation. It's like, there's a pandemic of a deadly disease and most of my family lives like eight hours away. That's true. Um, and so like, I don't want to like not see anybody ever again. Like, I don't want to like be stuck up here and have somebody go to the hospital. And like the last time I saw him was like, you know, months ago. Um, it just, it was just like, yeah, I just don't like the feeling of not being able to do anything about it or like, yeah. Well, you know what? Yeah. One of the sad things about this particular virus is that, you know, even even if you were here in Sacramento and we were let's say we were sheltering together as a family and I got sick and I had I had COVID-19 and I had to go to an ICU, they wouldn't let you come and see me, even if we were in the same yeah. town. So in a way, it doesn't matter whether you're far away or close, you know, but I get it. I totally get it. I mean, it's always nicer to. To be available, you know, to, yeah. to be close. Mm. And family, you know, family is important, you know, and, um, you know, it's tough. You know, I'd like to, you know, Ariel, your sister, is right here in town. And, you know, I don't get to see her, you know. I mean, they have brought me some food and I got a mask. She made a couple of masks for me and they dropped them by. But Oh, cool. Yeah, but we don't get to sit and visit, and, you know, I can't hug her and um, spend a lot of time together. It just isn't happening right now, so. Yeah. It is It is tough. It is tough. Yeah. And it could go on for, like, so long. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, it can. I mean, yeah, we actually, I mean, I hope, I hope that things get back to a little bit uh, more the way it was. Well, I don't think we'll ever go back to exactly the way it was. But, and I hope it's resolved sooner than later. But from what I'm hearing and reading, um, it's going to be, you know, 21, 2021, 2022 for some of this stuff. that They're saying like for sports events, like the NFL, baseball, that stuff, 2022, before they'll allow big groups of people like that. You know, mm, yeah. So yeah. one one final question: um, Do you are you concerned at all that some of these uh, logging companies would take advantage of the social distancing, um, knowing that people can't raise blockades and just do a lot of their um, activist work during this time? Oh, well, on the federal, <clears throat> sorry, on the federal level, that's definitely happening. So uh, Trump has green lighted the northern section of the Keystone XL pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the section that goes from, I believe, South Dakota to Canada. OK, so that work started 
And like I was saying before, like with about the Standing Rock, like uh, it's hard to imagine a scenario now where they can face the kind of resistance that it deserves. Mm -hmm. That pipeline is terrible. It's like a tar sands pipeline, one of the dirtiest uh, fossil fuel extraction techniques. So it's bad. And there's another pipeline here uh, right north of the California border. They want to build a liquid natural gas pipeline and a big facility uh, near this town called Coos Bay um, to export the gas. Um, and that's been, people have been resisting that mostly in court for, man, it seems like a decade or more. Mm-hmm. And they keep stopping it every year, every year. It's like, is this the year they're going to build the pipeline? No, no. And all of a sudden now they got the permit from the feds. The state is against it and the feds permitted it. So, uh, and that's in Oregon. But yeah, on the other hand, like I said, the timber industry is having problems uh, and they've actually done something I consider responsible, which is uh, shut down the sawmills because that's close quarters and, uh, you know, workers near each other and all that. They're still like having trees cut down and shipping them and things like that, um, unfortunately, but that's slowed down also. So... I think yes and no. Basically, yeah, there are some uh, parts of the government and industries are taking advantage of it, and some are affected by it. You know, another thing is that there's, they're building pipelines in Canada, so-called Canada, on the towards the west, where there's uh, tribal groups there who have never signed treaties. Uh, they've never they never uh, gave up anything. Oh wow! And their lands being stolen from them by the government to build these pipelines. Um, the Unistoten blockade is one of the resistance camps that was actually recently attacked by, uh, heavily armed police. Even snipers, uh, were positioned to, to there's called lethal oversight to watch the protesters with, from sniper positions with guns. And that was in Canada. Um, yeah. And then a lot of the railroads were getting blockaded. I don't know if you heard about the railroad blockades, but those were going on Mm-mm. because of that. In Canada. So now it's a whole different story. Everyone's like isolated and the industry is moving right along. They've got these man camps that are associated with uh, a lot of violence towards women. There's a lot of missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada. Oh, dear. And uh, and it's been largely attributed to uh, situations like these man camps where there's these guys from out of the area uh, living in trailer trailers that were trailer parks that were built by the oil companies. And I'm sure there's some like very cool people that do that. And it's unfortunate, but there's also some really terrible people that do that, that are, uh, basically running organized crime. And they're also making like $90 an hour. They're getting rich. They don't care about anybody but themselves. And they're terrible for the environment. They're terrible for the people, and they're probably spreading COVID nineteen uh, into remote communities. Sure. Wow. And you know that those types of issues are completely underreported or not reported at all. You know, I would say the general population doesn't know about stuff like that. 
you know? Yeah, I would encourage your other listeners to uh, look up the Unis Toten blockade. It's U-N-I-S-T-O-T-E-N, Unis Toten. Okay. <clears throat> That's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So what are your, what are your, uh, well, you know, you've got this Earth Day thing coming up on Wednesday. So I imagine you'll be busy learning how to, how to do Zoom and everything. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, yep. That and exploring the forest, looking for opportunities to save important habitat. Right. And, right. Trying to figure out how to be, uh, an advocate for the earth in this difficult situation we're in now. Amen to that. Yeah, and as soon as we can, bud, we'll, uh, I'll either come see you or you can come see me. We'll figure it out. That'd be cool. But yeah. uh, it's going to be, it's not going to be as soon as we want it to be. But uh, no. there'll, there'll come a day, you know, maybe I'll just buy a, yeah. maybe I'll just buy a bubble suit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll yeah. build you a camp. It'll be like twenty feet away from my camp. Put my yeah, put me up in a tree sit. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, and that's, that's how it's been happening. That's how I'll self isolate up in a tree. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's All good. right. Yeah. Hey, well, we're your podcast up there. Yeah, I could record one up there. Absolutely. And then yeah, because uh, yeah, because I would I could record it and then. Uh, uh, it records to an SD card, and then we just take the SD card, and someone else can upload it and edit it and all that stuff. Do a do a journal, cool. a podcast from the tree. That'd be crazy, interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, we'll see if that works out. <laughs> we don't have, a, yeah. There's no tree sits where I live right now, but there might be by then. You never know. Never know. <laughs> well, son, I love you very much. And I, you, and I miss you, but I'm glad you're safe. And I'm really proud of you. Um, keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, yeah, take care. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, you're Love welcome. You too. Thanks for chatting Love with me. too. Thanks for being willing to uh, be recorded. And, uh, no problem. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll, touch, I'll touch bases with you again you know, before too long. Alrighty, sounds good. All right. All right, have a good evening. All right, you too. All right, bye-bye. My Life and Welcome to It is written and produced by me, Chris Jensen. Technical consultant is David Patterson of... Drowning Man Productions. You can catch David on the podcast Wasting All the Time, where he, with three others, will entertain you with their improvisational comedy. Podcast art provided by Dave Edwards. You can follow Dave on Instagram at EvilDaveTM. Music for My Life and Welcome to It is Night by Ixon. That's I-K-S-O-N. And is available on SoundCloud. More information can be found in the program notes. Thanks always to Anchor for providing free hosting. You can visit their website at anchor.fm. Well, that's all for now. 
Be safe, be well, and God bless.